11 and then another time in November. So I did accept, and hopefully it came through. Yes, yes, yes. All right, friends, good morning. How are we doing? Doing well? Excellent. Take those things and punt them in a few seconds here. All right. Welcome back to Old Testament Survey. I hope you guys had a great week. How are you guys doing with your reading through the week? Finding like that's working well. Is anybody actually getting through the readings like three times? Anybody? No? Twice. Twice. Twice is definitely more doable than the third, right? The third time uh, is, is challenging. I don't know if you've noticed, but it does help when you are doing like the entire chunk in one sitting and then going through it slowly the rest of the week. Um, it, it just kind of gives us some eyes to maybe see during the week, like, oh, I'm familiar with this section, but I can't remember all the detail, and then you get to spend a little bit more time focused in on detail. So I'm glad to hear that things are going well with reading. This is uh, maybe a reading schedule for you for next week. Caleb's going to be teaching a class on Exodus 20 through 40, and he's also going to teach a class on Leviticus. So pray for him. (laughs) It's going to be a wonderful time in God's Word. 
You'll notice um, within the structure that I've set out for this coming week too, this, this breakup may be a non-traditional breakup from what you may recognize. Okay, so uh, from Exodus 25 to 31, then 32 to 35, 3. Why such a small section when we usually read large sections? You'll find out as you go through the week. So look forward to that. That's my little cue to you that that may be a very important section for you to understand within the entirety of the narrative. Okay? Um, I just wanted to start with maybe one or two questions from our previous two weeks of study through the book of Genesis. Any questions that we have from Genesis 1 through 50? Any questions? Okay, go ahead, Matt. Give me one. So, reading like Grudem's explanation of the Trinity, the Son's role is to be sent, um, that has kind of caused me to reconsider the, the theophanies in Genesis 16 with Hagar in 22 with Abraham and Isaac and 31 with Jacob. Yep. That it might be more likely to be Christ, the one that is sent. But what, what do you think about those? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, Matt's talking about topology here, which is a, really a, like a way to think through illustrations, and specifically theophanies are illustrations of what we could see in the person or work of Christ in the Old Testament. And I say that very intentionally, the person or work of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, theophanies can be found throughout Scripture. I, I think where it becomes very important in our distinguishments is that we let theophanies be theophanies, okay? So let the illustration be an illustration and don't mandate it to be beyond the illustration, okay? So if we look at the pictures of Hagar and Sarah, Abraham and Isaac, if we look even at a picture of Jacob uh, through the book of Genesis, we are seeing portraits of what we will see later to come in the person of Christ. We're gonna talk about that even today in Exodus and how Exodus plays a large illustrative role throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, but we need to recognize that theophanies are just that, theophanies. Right? When we start to get to a point where we say, this is absolutely 100% matter of fact, this picture of Jesus without any questioning of it whatsoever, I think that can get to an unhealthy spot. Does that help? Excellent. Another question. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get started looking into the book of Exodus this morning. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for my friends, and I thank you for how you rescue us. I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would help us to see again well, your great plan of redemption. And Lord, would you give us eyes to see what scripture plainly gives to us? God, give us minds that can uh, be sharpened by deep study in your word. And may our hearts be changed in such a way that we live according to the truth that we see here in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys may have heard this quote. It's a pretty famous quote. It's from William Shakespeare. He said, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. All the world is a stage, and all the men and women are merely players. You know, it's a really interesting way to think about our lives, but it's most compelling when we consider who the director of the grand play is. It's God. 
The Bible presents this world as a divinely crafted stage for playing the great story of human history. And its purpose is to showcase God's excellence and glory. So before we get into our material for today, let's just talk right about that. The Exodus is a great story, but for many reasons, it's more important than that. Why do we think that Exodus is more important than being just a story? Any ideas? Okay, God's power, excellent. It's foreshadowing God's redemptive plan. Okay. Foreshadows of a redemptive plan. A couple others. I think it, it's important because it starts to show how God is fulfilling his promises. I mean, there's just so much to learn out of Exodus when it comes to living our lives as Christians, to understanding, uh, you know, timing. Like, it, it was 400 years from Joseph to the Exodus where God didn't spend a lot of time uh, talking directly that we have recordings of it in the Bible. Uh, it's just so much. Amen. That's a really good point. You know, just as Devin was saying, the foreshadowing of the redemptive plan on the other end of that, too, it is the fulfillment of God's promise in his plan. Okay? Maybe one more. Why is Exodus more than just a great story? I think it also tells us about what God's sovereignty is all about. One of the things that was sticking out to me in the reading is that it's constantly talking about God ordaining these things for his glory. Um, and so that people would know that he's God. Amen. Yeah, so it, it's really a, not just a portrait of our lack of holiness and the greatness of our sinfulness, but it's especially a portrait of God's power, his sovereignty, his control, and how he's at work in all things. Yes, Katrina, you got one more? Yes, uh, he's, choosing, he's choosing the nation to be his Yeah. So uh, I would probably put that um, under the idea of the fulfillment of God's promise, right? So he, he did promise in Genesis that he would make a nation, right? and that that nation would be his people, a special people to display his glory. Great. It is super important that if we look at the book of Exodus, just as we did with Genesis, we need to understand what, Je- or what Exodus is telling us for the rest of the Bible, Right? Just as Genesis plays an essential role to telling the rest of the narrative of the Bible, so does Exodus. And what we're going to see today is that plan displayed, God's glory displayed. In the last two weeks, we observed the beginning of God's great drama in the book of Genesis, where Genesis unfolded the story of a few generations after Abraham. But for the most part, God's plan of redemption was unknown beyond this small band of Hebrews. This small group of people understood, but the rest of the people didn't necessarily understand. Whereas now in Exodus, God will turn the floodlights on to his plan of salvation and his purposes will be seen on the world stage as he defeats the most powerful nation on earth and delivers his people. All for the purpose of his glory. 
And not only does the scope of the drama expand, but in Exodus, God also introduces themes and patterns that will shape the way that he works throughout the rest of history. So for our study today, we're going to have basically two approaches. There's going to be uh, the first half and the second half. In the first half, I'm going to try to cover through the historical narrative uh, where we'll do a quick overview of the story and see the main points and find out how Exodus fits into the greater story of redemption. And then in the second step, I want to kind of draw back and lay out five theological principles or themes that are extremely important for us to understand in the book of Exodus. So let's talk through the overview of Exodus 1 through 19. You're probably thinking through, we're just covering 19 chapters today. Yes, that's intentional. We wanted to slow down a bit within the book of Exodus. Are you guys ready to dive in? Okay, good. Our overview really begins where we left off with last week. Remember, the crucial verse that guided our study in Genesis was Genesis 3.15, right, where God declared that the seed of the woman, a promised son, would crush the head of Satan and that Satan would strike his heel. So who is the seed? We learned in Genesis that the seed would come from the line of Abraham. Now, God had made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, just as Katrina brought up in our importance of studying the book of Exodus, and that this nation would possess the land of Canaan and be a blessing to the rest of the world. But when we arrive to the start of Exodus, that is not the case. That's not what's going on. They aren't a great nation, and they don't possess any land. And instead, they are living as foreigners in the nation of Egypt, where they've settled with their brother, Joseph, during a great famine. But one aspect of God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. He may not see the nation and he may not see the land, but there is one promise that's being fulfilled. Anybody know what it is? The multiplication. The promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. So if we look at Exodus 1-7, it says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But approximately 300 years later, around 1500 BC or so, Israel's multiplication has become Egypt's aggravation. In response to these great numbers, the Egyptians decide that they're going to oppress and enslave the Israelites. So does God keep his promise? What will happen to the children of Abraham? What will happen to the promised seed of the woman? This is really the stage that's presented for the rest of the book. <clears throat> great hope is introduced in Exodus chapter 2 especially in verse 24 as Israel cries out to the Lord God hears their cries look at uh, Exodus 2 verse 24 okay. somebody want to read that for us real quick Devin could you read that Amen. Notice what he says right there. 
God heard the crying of his people and he what? He remembered the covenant that he had established with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. In chapter 2, we're introduced to the person of Moses. He's born. And in chapter 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. God reveals his plan in Exodus 3.8 to rescue his people. And after that, the showdown really begins. This is not a battle between Egypt and Israel. It's actually a battle between Egypt's Pharaoh and Israel's God, the great I Am. Starting in chapter 7, verse 14, God sends a series of horrific plagues upon the land. But after the first few plagues, God begins to distinguish in his judgment between Egypt and Israel to make it plain who his enemy is and who his people are. The Egyptians receive boils on their skin. Hail destroys their land. Locusts devour their crops. Utter darkness suffocates their homes. But none of these plagues affect God's people. Amazingly, as Pharaoh is seeing all this, he does not relent to yield to the Lord and to release Israel. Not that is until the final plague, the final act of judgment, the 10th plague, where the Lord warns Moses that he will go throughout Egypt and kill every firstborn son at midnight. But even as he plans to pour wrath out on his enemies, Egypt, or, yeah, the Lord in his mercy provides a way to spare his people. Each family is to slaughter a year-old lamb and put its blood on their doorframe. We see in Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13, especially in verse 13, it says, This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. That's why this decisive act of judgment and grace is called the Passover. God passes over those homes that are marked by the blood of the substitute, the lamb that was slain. Well, after this ultimate blow, Pharaoh finally surrenders and Israel marches out of Egypt in what's called the great exodus. The word exodus literally comes from the Greek and it means departure. But the Lord is not done with Egypt yet. This is not the end. Look at Exodus 14.4. Somebody read that for us. Dan, can you read that? Exodus 14.4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will find glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Amen. So in a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, God leads the people of Israel to the shore at the Red Sea. It's a dead end. It's a trap. Red hot in the pursuit, the Egyptian army closes in upon the nation or the people of Israel. And the Lord divides the waters, and Israel walks through on dry land. And the Lord drowns their enemies in a torrent of judgment. It's really an amazing account. The the great nation of of Egypt attacking the Israelites, they look like they're dead to rights. 
And like they're just going to be caught in this trap. And the Lord comes and shows his power again, shows his might, rescues them and judges the other nation. Now, the people have been redeemed by the Lord. But the question becomes, will they continue to trust the Lord? Their journey is not over. In fact, if anything, it's actually just kind of begun. This is the beginning of their journey. They're going to head toward the promised land. And in chapter 15, Moses praises God for his deliverance through a song. It's a wonderful passage to, to look at, to memorize, and to study, where, where Moses just sings the praises of God. But right after that, the people complain that there's no water or no food on this journey. Yet even though they're grumbling, they're disobedient people that are not worthy of God's favor, God continues to lead them through the desert to make a covenant with them. Look at 19, verses 4 and 5. Exodus 19, 4 and 5. It says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. Verse 6 continues to say, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nations. My holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Holy there means separated. Separated, yep. So as they're hearing these words from God, God is descending upon Mount Sinai in all his majestic holiness. As we'll see next week, he marks Israel off as his own by giving them the law. It's an amazing chapter in in redemptive history. We have oppression, judgment, and miraculous deliverance. The promises made to Abraham are one step closer to their fulfillment in the seed of the woman that is to come. But this is not just a gripping story. In fact, if you have noticed during our overview that throughout the narrative, God speaks. He speaks to Moses and Aaron, and through them, he speaks to Pharaoh and the people of Israel. Through his words, the Lord reveals the meaning of the great events he's accomplished on this grand stage. Not only has he done them, he's explained them. And it's for that reason that Exodus is a foundational book for the rest of the Bible. And that's what we're going to discuss next as we think about five theological themes that are developed through the first half of the book of Exodus. Do we have any questions about the overview, what we've seen in the, the first 19 chapters? Okay. Uh, maybe let's do this together. This may be a helpful exercise. Wow, look at that picture. Very, very beautiful. <coughs> I see we have some wonderful artists that are growing here at Hebrew Church of Hope. I can't say I've taken any part in that discipling. So when we think about um, narratives in particular, the way that we study narrative, we need to recognize structure through plot, right? So the way we read a letter and understand how a letter is developed is different than how we read a story, okay? So if we have like a, what I like to call a little plot arc here, okay? So what are the parts to a plot arc? Anybody know? 
we've got like our setting and basically that could be who, the what, the where. Then we have some sort of rise of conflict, right, where there's some sort of change. And as the conflict grows, it grows in tension and it gets to this point where there has to be some sort of resolution or climax where it meets this point where it just has to turn. And then we find really in the climax after that there's a resolution and then that may lead to the next scene change, okay? So if we're gonna look at Exodus 1 through 19, let's think about this together. What we find out in Exodus, basically, I'd say one through three, we really get to see the characters of the story of Exodus on display. We have the nation of Israel, we have God, who identifies himself as Yahweh. We have the Egyptians. And particularly Pharaoh. And even as we develop this, we get to say right ahead in chapter 1, we see the beginning of the conflict. The nation of Israel is growing to the aggravation of Egypt. And Egypt has placed the nation of Israel into slavery. They're doing their work and their bidding. They become jealous. They become jealous, right? So while we see the development of the characters, you know, we forgot even here, we have Moses. He may be an important person in Exodus, huh? Not only Moses, but maybe Aaron, right? Because Moses is afraid to open up his mouth, right? And he's like, I can't do it, God. And then God's like, I'm going to use your brother, Aaron. Right? It just proves that the Levitical priesthood was failed from day one. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, though, let's think about the priesthood, right? The promise that we saw in the early part of Exodus wasn't just that Aaron would be the priest, but that he would make a nation of priests right. who would be his ambassadors and work out his promises. So we have a bunch of characters that we're developing, and the ultimate conflict we see is not between Israel and Egypt, it's between God and Pharaoh. God and Pharaoh. God tells Pharaoh to let his people go, and Pharaoh does not. Right? So what do you think the climax is? The final plague. Final plague. Okay, so the firstborn. So I'm going to put chap uh, that's chapter 12. Uh, 11. 11. We'll say all the way through 13. Because in chapter 12, there's some explanation to the, the plague. And then 13, we actually see the turn. And, oh, you know, we've got to go all the way to 14.4, right? Because 14.4 is where we see them at the sea. We've got this giant climax. It's building. We get to the Red Sea. That's the turning point. Either God's people are going to survive or they're going to die, right? And then... Really, 14 and 15 are the resolution. God rescues. And Moses sings the praises of the Lord. And then 16 through 19, we see the establishment of a new, new stage, new setting. So this is helpful as we think through how to study this, right? And I want you guys just to kind of think through plot arcs, as you're, especially as you're going through narrative books. In the Old Testament, it really 
narrative books in the New Testament, you can use the same sort of structure. Okay? So this is really foundational as you're trying to think through it. You guys got this? Okay. Anybody want to take a picture of it? Okay. All right. It's going to be on the back of the board. I won't, I won't get rid of it yet. I think it looks a little bit better than the drawing that's on there. Any questions about the structure, the overview? Maybe one or two. Okay. I gave you time. <laughs> if anything comes up. <laughs> it's not about the structure. Yeah. Was there a given timeline between when the first plague started and the last final plague? Oh, that's an excellent question. Is there a timeline between the first plague and the last plague? I don't think we see any dates within the story. We do see that there's a succession, right? And there seems to be within the plagues, we could, we could even build a plot structure for the plagues, right? They could represent the same sort of conflict development and resolution that we see in the entirety. Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't necessarily see a timeline there. The date of the whole book with the different, in history, depending on what kingdom was really in control between, there's, there's some... Yeah, there could be some like study about the exact date of writing, but we're thinking anywhere around 1500 BC. Carol. Okay, I had something like this might be silly and foolish, but these little tiny things come to my mind. Like when they're supposed to put like the blood of the lamb on their doors, um, and those were the people of Israel. Mm. Right, so what if, they, and they were slaves, right? Yeah. How do slaves have lambs? And what if one family had a lamb and the other family didn't? Did they borrow the blood to put on their door as well? Well, the second one's covered by the text itself. Yeah, the second one is covered by the text itself. Um, so 12 and 13 are really helpful to this. What I think is interesting about the, the 10th plague, notice that God doesn't say he's going to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. He says he's going to kill the firstborn, period. Yeah. Okay? So this this plague is not only upon the nation of, Israel, of Egypt at this point. The people of Israel, if they don't follow God's instructions in this, this is God's plague upon the land. Okay, So God is judging the land. And the only way that Israel can be covered is through a substitute which is brought through the land that's slain. So how do they work this together? Well, Moses gave this instruction to the people. right? So he's got the nation, uh, the people of Israel together. Here's what the Lord has said. Here's what you need to do. And the text doesn't implicitly tell me what the response to this is, but I'm going to make the suggestion that they did everything possible to follow the Lord's command here. <clears throat> but in theory, if an Israelite did not follow the instructions of the Lord, their firstborn was dead. <clears throat> Yeah, that's Exodus uh, 11 through 13. Yep. It says if you didn't have, uh, if the lamb was uh, too much food or not enough food for your household, you'd share with the adjacent household. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious as to why in some of these plagues, uh, it states the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It doesn't say it in every one of them. Yep. So why are there some that he Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's actually a theme that we'll talk about in its development through the entirety of the book. Devin had mentioned that one of the important things we see is God's sovereignty in the book of Exodus. Um, But what you notice is in the beginning of the plagues, God actually tells Egypt and Pharaoh specifically, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill your firstborn. Okay, So I think that's Exodus 4.13. He gives him that call right up front. If you don't do this, I'm going to kill your firstborn. Okay? So that's established right at the beginning as a warning. And he does ultimately fulfill that in Exodus 11 through 13. Um, The reason for his hardening continues to be to display the conflict between God and Pharaoh. Right? That's where the conflict exists between God and Pharaoh, not Egypt and Israel. God and Pharaoh. Um, And so God wants to display his power to the nations. So it's not necessarily a huge detail or importance or a huge matter of importance that he doesn't do it within every plague. But the fact that he highlights it all the way through to the end of the plagues, we look at the whole picture. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's 423. 423. That's the one last question. Yep. All right. So say if you're a couple, man, wife, don't have any kids. Um, but say one of that man was the firstborn of his parents. Would he be struck down? Okay, so you think of babies when you say yeah. firstborn. Uh, but might, might be as well. Yeah. Firstborn sons, yeah. So. Yeah. Good job following the how does this work? <laughs> it's pretty, pretty scary when you think about the whole of it. Good. All right, so that's good for questions for right now. If you think of more, write them down so we can cover maybe one or two at the end. But we're going to cover five theological important themes in Exodus 1 through 19. And the first theme I want you guys to think about is God's unique identity. God's unique identity. Look at Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. It says this, as you flip your Bibles there. Then Moses said to God... If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am sent me to you. What God is saying to Moses here is that he Exist and that his existence is absolute. He did not derive his existence from anyone or anything else. God exists as a self existent, self sufficient God. He is self existent and self sufficient. He simply and absolutely is. As the I am, God reveals himself. As the free and sovereign ruler. And that is why he will prevail against Egypt on this grand stage. You'll notice that that from this point on in Exodus, as Moses refers to God, most often not by the word God, but by the, the phraseology, the Lord, which is in all caps in our Bibles. And the Hebrew title for this is Yahweh which most literally means I am. Against Egypt's countless deities, God insists that he is supreme and that he is unique. 
The verse that sums up the conflict between God and Pharaoh is really found in chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who is the Lord? The whole book of Exodus is an answer really to that question. So let's walk through just a few key attributes of the I am that Exodus reveals to us. First, the Lord is a covenant-keeping God. Exodus 6.5 says that God acted in, in the Exodus because he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a covenant-keeping God. Second, the Lord is utterly supreme. Utterly supreme. Moses tells Pharaoh in 8.10, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. No one like Yahweh. He is utterly supreme. Third, the Lord is the great warrior. He is the great warrior. That's what Yahweh's defeat of the Egyptian army is all about. And that's what Moses sings about in chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, that the Lord Yahweh is a great warrior. He delivers his people. And finally, the Lord is the caring provider. The caring provider. When Israel is hungry, Yahweh feeds them. Why? Chapter 16, verse 12 says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He is the caring provider. Is this God our hope? In our times of trouble and persecution, we can meditate on the attributes of the I am that is revealed in Exodus. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is utterly supreme. He is the great warrior. He is the great care provider. Perhaps we even know people within our church setting that are struggling and enduring in a season of suffering. Maybe these are descriptions that we can use to encourage them in this season, to remind them of who God is. So the first key theme is God's unique identity. The second is the pattern of redemption. The pattern of redemption. Not only do we see God's unique identity in in Exodus, we see something of the way that he works in Exodus. And this pattern of redemption that prefigures later what we'll see in salvation history. So there are three aspects of this pattern that we need to see. First, the problem is that the people are oppressed in slavery. So first, the problem, people are oppressed in slavery. The exodus is the salvation of God's people out of something. In this case, it's out of tyrannical captivity. So first is the problem of the people oppressed in slavery. Interesting that Paul in the book of Romans says that we are slaves to sin. Take that, tuck it away in your pocket. Maybe save it for a New Testament survey. Second, within the pattern of redemption, we see the solution. 
The solution is the Lord's single-handed action to save his people. And he spares them from his judgment through a blood sacrifice. So there's two key aspects of this, right? The first is that the Lord single-handedly acts for his people. How does he do so? Through blood sacrifice. The Lord acts through blood sacrifice. The concept of redemption, of course, refers to purchasing freedom for a slave. The death of the Passover lamb is the ransom price for the firstborn sons of Israel. So we saw the problem, people oppressed in slavery, the solution, God's action through the blood sparing or shedding for his people. And the third, the third key aspect of this pattern of redemption is the result. The result is that the Lord leads his people to the promised land where they can worship him and be in fellowship with him. So it's not just their rescuing from their oppression, it's delivering them to a place where they can worship him in freedom and be with him. When Moses tells Pharaoh that God wants his people free, he says the reason is that the Lord's people can go to worship him. Right? That can easily be lost as we're trying to read through the narrative that's here in Exodus. We're thinking, God's got to rescue his people. He's got to get them out of Egypt. Why is he rescuing them? He's rescuing them so they can worship him and be with him. So Israel is rescued out of slavery with the intent of taking them into a land where they can worship as God's people in God's place under God's rule. That may or may not have been the theme of Genesis. If we only think of Exodus as a release from physical slavery, we will misunderstand all of the references to Exodus that come later in the Bible. We need to see the ultimate goal is worship and relationship. Worship and relationship. These three aspects of God's plan of redemption, the problem of slavery, the solution of salvation by sacrifice, and the result of restored worship will be the major recurring themes of the rest of the Bible. For example, listen to Psalm 130, verse 7, where it reflects upon this Exodus pattern. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord, with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The problem? Not a foreign captor, but people's own sin. The solution? God himself will redeem. The result? Israel puts its hope in the Lord. The pattern. You can see it in Psalm 130, verse 7. We see it again in the Old Testament prophetic books where they describe Israel's later exile into Babylon as a reversal of the Exodus. The people fall out of fellowship with God. They lose the land. They become aliens again in foreign lands where they're again mistreated. And then the return from exile is portrayed as a new and greater exodus returning to the land by God's mighty right arm to again have fellowship with him. And so think of the Old Testament prophetic books as the reversal of the exodus and then the renewal of the exodus, a greater exodus where they're brought into fellowship with God himself. But ultimately we see the greatest example of the exodus 
not in Psalm 130, not in the prophetic books, ultimately in the person of Jesus, in his ministry. In Luke 9, 31, Jesus literally calls his death and resurrection an exodus. And Titus 2.14 says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. That's the solution to redeem us, the solution from all lawlessness. That's the problem. We are lawless. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's the result that we belong to God and we worship him. So isn't it amazing that every pattern, every book of the Bible, we can see this way that God works just as he worked in the book of Exodus. The problem, the solution, the result. So the third, okay, third pattern of redemption. I could probably spend all day on that if I wanted to. The third, though, is through God's gracious provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. Guys, this one is super important for us as evangelicals. We highly value substitutionary sacrifice. If we get this wrong, we get the gospel wrong. Okay? God gives provision of the sacrifice we need. So let's turn again to Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Did you notice how Yahweh intends to strike down every firstborn? Notice what he says, not only in the firstborn in Egypt, it says both man and beast. Both man and beast, all firstborn. In most of the earlier plagues, Israel was spared while Egypt suffered. But in this final plague, the Lord is crystal clear. Every firstborn son will die. Unless a lamb is provided in his place. As you'll remember from our discussion of Genesis, Israel isn't God's people because they're perfect. They're not God's people because they're perfect. And just like the Egyptians, they deserve punishment for their sins. Yahweh could kill the firstborn sons of Israel too, and no one could question his goodness or his justice. He would be both good and just in doing so. Yet, he provides a substitute. It's not that punishment is given to Israel or to Egypt, but not to Israel. Rather, Israel's punishment falls upon a substitute. Their punishment falls upon a substitute. And if you read through chapter 12, again this week, you'll see that before the Passover even happens, God gives instructions for how they are to remember the Passover every year every year. The Lord wants the celebration of the Passover to define his redeemed people throughout their future. God even commands them to start a new calendar with a Passover feast in the first month. Why does he do that? Well, because the symbolism of the Passover wasn't just 
a reminder of the past. It was the shape of what was to come. So when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Paul tells the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Just as the Passover lamb's bones were not broken, as God instructs in Exodus 12, 46. So John 19, 36 points out that Jesus's bones were not broken on the cross. And it is at a Passover celebration when Jesus establishes what? The Lord's Supper, where he tells his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Whenever the New Testament remembers the Exodus, it focuses in on Passover. Why? Because the main point wasn't political liberation. It was substitutionary sacrifice. It wasn't their political liberation. It was substitutionary sacrifice. The primary application of the Passover is to believe in the Christ because who, those who turn to Jesus are washed and justified by his blood. Substitutionary sacrifice is key. We don't understand that. We get the gospel wrong. Jesus has come in our place. Fourth, fourth theme is that God has a special people. God has special people. God's purpose for the Exodus isn't just rescue. It's to establish this this people as a nation that belongs to him and represents him to the world. Belongs to him and represents him to the world. The most striking verse that shows this special identity is in 4:22 and 23, where God tells Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel, of all descendants of Abraham, is called God's son. Israel is first in God's affections. As God's covenant people, they receive special blessing, but they have also a special mission to display Yahweh's glory to the rest of the nations. So how does Israel do at representing God as God's son in the book of Exodus? (laughs) I'll just tell you right up front. Pretty poorly, (laughs) okay? They don't do a great job, right? They don't do a great job of looking like God's son. We see this specifically. At the end of the Exodus, the son of God, Israel, then miraculously passes through the water of the Red Sea in chapter 14. They walk through the water. In chapter 16, they begin to march in the desert, wilderness. And it's just in chapter 16, verse 8, where they begin to grumble against the Lord because they have no food and no water. God's rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. In fact, what we find in that text is later that Israel complains to Moses and says, bring us back into slavery. In 17.2, they put the Lord to the test when they quarrel with Moses about not having water to drink. And then in Exodus 32, which we'll learn more about next week, while Moses receives the very Ten Commandments that forbid idolatry, the people worship a golden calf and they call it their God. 
Israel is not doing a great job of representing God as God's son. And here's the news of the rest of the Old Testament. It gets worse as it goes along. But their failure as God's son only highlights the need for Jesus as God's son. Matthew is careful to point out in his gospel in Matthew 3 and 4 that one, in Jesus' baptism, Jesus passes through the waters and is called God's beloved son. Think of Exodus. Second, he then goes into the desert to be what? To be tempted by Satan. And in that temptation, his first temptation is about not having any food to eat. Think of the Exodus, the wilderness. And not only that, his second temptation is to, Exodus 17, Matthew 4, test God. To test God. And his final temptation in Matthew's gospel is to worship someone other than God. But put in the same circumstances as Israel, God's true son obeys perfectly. He's the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. He is the true Israel. And then finally, I'm going to try to fly through this. We've got two minutes. It's God's glorious motive. God's glorious motive. Most secular retellings of the book of Exodus miss the point of the book entirely. They, re- they focus on the tragedy of slavery, the heroism of Moses. But when you read the text, you can't get around the most common refrain in Exodus a refrain that shows God's motives in all that he does. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. Flip your Bible there quickly. Exodus 6, verse 7. God says this, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. And you shall know that I am the Lord. That phrase occurs at least 14 times in the first half of the book of Exodus. 14 times in 19 chapters, the Lord says, you will know that I am the Lord. God's purpose is to show off who he is and to exalt his glory. God's glory is the purpose of the plagues. As Moses says in chapter 9, verse 29, the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. God's glory is the purpose of judgment at the, uh, the judgment of Egypt at the Red Sea. Where in 14.4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And perhaps most amazingly, God's glory is the reason why God himself sovereignly hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would resist the Lord and come under his judgment. Did you notice what, what I just said? I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Really, God is the one who orchestrates Pharaoh's refusal of God? Precisely. It's exactly what Exodus is saying. 
God does it specifically so that he can receive what? Maximum glory. This does not mean that Pharaoh is not responsible for his decisions. He is personally guilty and deserving of judgment. Paul clarifies that point in Romans 9, in fact. No, Pharaoh stands as a humbling example that God does all that he does, even hardening a sinner's heart for his glory. He does it for his own glory. I hope that you can see that God's self-glorification is the ultimate summary of what we've studied in the first half of the book of Exodus. After all, why had the sovereign God chosen to leave his people in Egypt anyway? Because Egypt was a great power. Because Egypt provided the perfect stage on which God could display his glory. Now God has gone on a public campaign for his own glory. And he's raised himself up on this great stage and he has prevailed. He has revealed his unique identity. He's established a plan and a pattern for redemption. He's provided a substitutionary sacrifice. He's called out his special people all for his glory. And there is a great application that we can draw from this. Friends, you and I were created to bring glory to God. You and I were created to bring glory to God. And if we are trusting in Christ, remember that we were redeemed from the slavery of sin so that we might display the glorious power and glorious character of God. That we might display who God is. So what if the dominating barrenner over your life was to give glory to God? How might that change your attitude? How might that change your relationships? How might your money management change? How might your time management change? Your purpose is to glorify God. Does that change? Is that the banner of your life? It's no surprise that just like the other themes we've seen today, God's self-glorification becomes a central theme in the New Testament. As it says in Revelation 1, 5 and 6, to him who loves us, God's unique identity, and has freed us from our sins, God's mighty redemption. By his blood, God's substitutionary sacrifice, and has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, God's special people. To him be what? Glory. And dominion, God's glorious motive. For how long? Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God's glory is the purpose of Exodus. We pray for us and we'll go worship the Lord together. Father, we thank you for your glory. We thank you for your rescuing power, that you are the God who saves, that you are the God who is utterly supreme. And we pray that as we reflect on your character even now, that it would tune our hearts as we go to worship with the other saints that have gathered to be with us on this Lord's day. And may our purpose be in life, together as the church and individually as believers who follow you, to bring you glory and to display your glory to the world around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.